we don't normally do this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, upfront say there'll be some time at the end of the service, at the end of the sermon. Sorry, if you have any questions or comments, we'll, we'll give it a few minutes. So I'll, I'll give you some warning if there's a question you wanted to ask or a comment you wanted to make. We'll, be off, we'll uh, have a few moments for that at the end of the sermon. Uh, loneliness. Uh, it's a major problem in societies and cultures all over the world. Whether it's the West or the East, in the city or the bush, among men and women, among young and old, among singles, but also among married people. And of course, COVID and the lockdowns around the world have made it worse. In Australia, research suggests that nearly 3 million adults, 15% of the adult population, experience high levels of loneliness. Not surprisingly, loneliness affects our mental health, contributing to stress, anxiety, depression, even dementia. Uh, and of course, it's a major factor in suicide. But there's research that shows that, a connection, there's a, that there is a connection to physical health as well from loneliness. Headaches, insomnia, restlessness, eating disorders, substance abuse. In fact, it's been estimated that loneliness is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day is worse than obesity and increases your risk of heart disease. Uh, Australian Federal MP, uh, sorry, that should say Andrew Giles, uh, Andrew Giles, uh, he co-chairs the Parliamentary Friends of uh, Ending Loneliness uh, and he recently called loneliness the next global public health emergency that we must address. And so governments, researchers and non-government organisations are working on the problem of loneliness in our society. Uh, they're treating the symptoms, they're providing tools and resources to help people make connections with one another. Uh, I was surprised to learn this week that loneliness is such a problem in the UK that the government appointed a Minister for Loneliness in 2018. The goals of the portfolio are to raise awareness of loneliness, including making sure that all new policy and legislation considers loneliness. The second goal is to support organisations that run programs that build connections, and then thirdly, uh, they measure what is actually effective. So what is loneliness? Well, it's not the same as being alone. Many people feel lonely even when their lives are full of people. Loneliness is when people don't feel connected to, the, to their friends. They feel a lack of quality or depth in their relationships. Now I think, if we're honest, all of us at times feel that way. You see, God made us to be in relationships, to know and to be known just as God himself is relationship. God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And he made us in his image, his likeness, part of which means that we were made to be connected to people. In Genesis 2.18, God says after 
he made the man, after he made Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And he makes the woman who is designed to be united to the man and for them to be a team. And our experience of life reflects that. Life is not good when we're alone. One of the impacts of Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis chapter 3 is that human relationships are affected. Sin means that all of us are selfish and we hurt one another and relationships suffer. And then we hide ourselves from other people because we don't want to be hurt. We hide ourselves emotionally. Uh, We want to be known and accepted and understood, but we're scared of being open and authentic. We're afraid that people will hurt or ignore or reject us. Now, for those and other reasons, many of us have, have this gap between the actual amount of connection that we have with people and what we would like to have. That's loneliness. Now, that may be your experience of human relationships, but God promises that it is never like that with him. He's given us Psalm 139 where he speaks to us. King David is describing his relationship with God and as God speaks through David, God wants us to listen and learn from David. If you know God, then that experience will be your experience as well. God is on our side. God is for us wherever we go, whatever happens. Now, at one level, Psalm 139, it's a poem about about God's qualities. He sees everything, he is everywhere, he knows everything, he's created everything, and he he will hold everything accountable for judgment. That's a summary of what the poem's about. But all of it is told from David's perspective, his experience of God, his relationship with this God. And so it's a very personal reflection. Uh, Firstly, first section, verses 1 to 6, God knows David completely. Uh, Notice that it's a relationship, uh, it's a knowledge that grows. Uh, This is an active knowledge, it's it's relational. Uh, In verse 1, God searches or examines David. In verse 3, God investigates or discerns his coming and going. That word discern, it's the one that's used for sifting or willowing, uh, winnowing wheat. As David lives his life, God is growing in his knowledge about David. That's interesting, isn't it? The way David responds to situations, to to tests and trials, it reveals his character to God. And the result, verse 2, is that God knows David, whatever David's doing. He knows him, sitting or rising. Even his thoughts are known. And so verse 4, he knows David so well, he can finish David's sentences. He knows what David is going to say. Now, we sometimes say that about the closest of human relationships, don't we? We we just finish each other's sentences. Uh, Then look at verse 5. The relationship gets more intense. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Uh, That word for hem in can also be translated as 
tie up or besiege. Now, is that a good experience for David or or is it a negative one? Does he feel comforted and protected by God or, or does he feel smothered and exposed? That God is getting too real and close and David just wants some space. Now remember, God doesn't just see everything we do, he he knows everything we think. He knows the words we are going to speak before we speak them. Now that's quite confronting, isn't it? And maybe a little scary. And and we feel that tension in human relationships as well, don't we? It, It can be scary to be known by someone so well you're exposed and vulnerable. You're trusting them with who you are. And sometimes we react by pushing that other person away. We need space. Our relationship's affected. So how does David react to God coming close? Look at verse 6. He says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, I think that can also be taken in two ways. Positively, and this is probably the easiest way to read it, He's saying he loves the protection and closeness that comes from God knowing him. But it could mean that to be known as closely as that, it's shocking or startling. He's feeling uncomfortable and confronted. Now I'm actually leaning towards that more negative view. I think verse 7 supports that, so let's move on to the next section. The second paragraph, verses 7 to 12, describe how God is with David wherever he goes. Now, once again, this verse can be taken in two ways. If we understand verse 5 and 6 in a good way, in a positive sense, verses 7 to 12, David is welcoming God's presence and guidance wherever he goes. Verse 8, whether he's up to heaven or down to the place of the dead. Verse 9, east to the sunrise or west over the sea. Verse 11 and 12, even through the night, God sees him as if it's daylight. God is omniscient. He he knows everything. God is omnipresent. He exists everywhere. But to give it a negative meaning, notice that David seems to be trying to run away from God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? So so perhaps there's a slight desperate feel to to what David's doing here. He can't escape God's scrutiny. Now, perhaps you've got an opinion on that, maybe you're not sure. If if that's what David is thinking, then, then the way God treats him anyway is surprising. Verse 10, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. God doesn't just watch and know. He's not looking on from a distance. God is acting. He's guiding to safety and life. He's holding secure in danger. Perhaps even despite David lacking trust or or running away from him. God's not misusing his knowledge. He's not misusing his power. He's working for David's good. And we can see why God is so committed to David in the third paragraph, verses 13 to 18. Because God created David. 
Why, do you, why does God guide and hold David so fast, even as David runs? Verse 13 begins, For you created me, or because you created my inmost being. Strand by strand, you weaved me together. David's point is that the, the maker or the creator has a commitment to the thing that he's made. He wants to see it flourish and grow. He, he's got a sense of ownership over this person he's made. David's travelled east and west. He's travelled up and down, night and day, and God is there. Then David goes back in time. Four-dimensional. He was there in his mother's womb, verse 15 and 16. God is showing his long-term investment in David. And not just at the start of life. God knows the end as well. Verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows the end. And David's response, verse 14, is to be amazed. Just like verse 6. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Uh, David's opinion, perhaps it's changing or perhaps he's just uh, saying again his positive feelings about it. The fact that he is alive amazes him and God is the cause of his life and so he's praising God. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. Rather than wanting to escape God for, for knowing him so closely, David welcomes it. There's a trust there. As we move through the psalm, I think we see David's trust growing as he meditates, as he thinks about David's, uh, God's commitment to him through his whole life. Uh, now that brings us to the last, uh, the last paragraph, verses 19 to 24. If only you would slay the wicked. I wonder how many of you noticed <laughs> as Anne was reading that and thought, oh, What's going on there? There's, it's a change. There's a shocking change of mood, at, at least it seems to be. But just notice a couple of things about these last verses, these last, this last section. The wicked are not David's enemies. He, he's not hating them because they're hurting him. The, the wicked are God's enemies. Verse 20, they're speaking evil of God. They're misusing God's name. And so one way of thinking about these verses is that David is affirming his loyalty to God, to the God who has been loyal to him. Verse 22, he says, God's enemies are my enemies. Now this is very much like the political treaties, political covenants, contracts that were signed in that time of David. The weaker king would, would swear his allegiance to the stronger king. And the weaker king would promise that the stronger king's enemies would be the weaker king's enemies as well. Our, our army will be part of your army if you need it. So perhaps uh, the way to understand these verses that helps them fit into the rest of the psalm is that they're actually expressing David's commitment to the God who is committed to him probably enough to be said on that but 
And now that brings us to David's final request, verse 23 and 24. In, in fact, this is the only request. This is the only place David asks for anything in this psalm. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now this is a request that flows out of his new trust in God. He's actually inviting God to do what God, he's already described God doing. That's interesting. He's actually inviting God to do what he has already recognised that God does. Let me show you. He's actually giving God permission. He opens himself up to God to be known. He says, search me and know my heart. These are the same words from verse 1 that describe God searching him and knowing him. And then he says, lead me in the way everlasting. That's the same word as verse 10 where he describes God's hand leading him through life. But now David's actually welcoming that involvement in his life because he trusts God. He knows that the God who knows him and is with him is actually for him. He won't reject or abandon him. God has chased David all over the world, at least in this poem, and God will lead him and protect him because God created him. And God will be there even into eternity, whatever earthly friends uh, we have or don't have. That's what this psalm's teaching us. Well, that's Psalm 139. Uh, it's true that experience of God's presence is real, and all those things that David experienced can be true for you too. But I want to suggest it's an incomplete picture. Because God's commitment to us, his care for us, it's not just because he created us, but because he recreated us. He saved us through Jesus. God's plan wasn't just that he would know us, but that we would know him. And it wasn't just that he would see us and lead us, but that he would be with us. And not that he would just watch and act from a distance, but he would come and dwell, live among us. And so he sent his son to be us, to become human. Matthew tells us that when Jesus was born, he was to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And as we read about Jesus in the Gospels, we learn that he is a human being who feels all the temptations and the struggles that we feel. We learn that Jesus is a teacher, a healer, a saviour, a lord, a king. We learn all sorts of things about Jesus, but here's one we don't think about often. He's a friend. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says to his disciples... Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, 
because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Now, the disciples are Jesus' friends, those who are with him there at the end, but not just his disciples. Anyone who does what Jesus commands are his friends. And notice the characteristic of friendship from Jesus' perspective. He shares with his friends everything he's learned from his father. And he lays down his life for friends. But friendship is not just a privilege for the special few for, or those who, who obey him. Matthew eleven nineteen. Jesus quoting his critics and he says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking and they, his, his critics, say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now that's an accusation from his enemies, but Jesus must have been doing something like this to be accused of it. What would it look like for him to be a friend of sinners? Well, he spends time with them. He accepts and welcomes them. He eats and drinks with them. Enough eating and drinking that he would be accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus was loving these sinners, even if he didn't agree with their choices. Now, that's actually the true definition of tolerance. We have a particular view of tolerance in our society these days, don't we? That you must agree with someone's choices to be tolerant. But, but Jesus was tolerant. Jesus loved these people without agreeing with their life's life choices. Now, if Jesus is being accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, it must have meant that as he spent time with them, these people felt comfortable to be with him. There's an interesting little description at the start of Luke chapter 15, just before Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that attitude from the Pharisees causes Jesus to tell these stories about the prodigal son. Now the tax collectors and sinners, they're gathering around Jesus and he welcomes them. They sense something different about him. Other people will judge and dismiss these people, but Jesus draws them in by his attitude and his acceptance and his teaching and he eats with them. In other words, he's a friend of sinners. I won't ask for a show of hands, but you know, if you are a sinner, that's you. He's a friend of sinners. Now, listen to how Dane Ortland puts it in his wonderful little book. Um, it's a great book. Can I encourage you, if you want to get a good book that will warm your heart, this is it. Uh, in his wonderful little book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, he says, Here is the promise of the Gospel and the message of the whole Bible. 
In Jesus Christ, we are given a friend who will, all, will, who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. This is a companion whose embrace of us does not strengthen or weaken, depending on how clean or unclean, how attractive or revolting, how faithful or fickle we presently are. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? How many friends do you have that you can confidently say that about? But perhaps you're saying, sure, David, that was then, uh, but it's different now. When Jesus walked on the earth, he welcomed sinners, but now he's back in heaven. He, he's put all of that away. He's, he's high and he's distant from us. We're back to what Psalm 139 was like. God's way out there. But that's not what Jesus actually teaches. In John chapters 13 to 16, he's preparing his disciples. It's called the upper room discourse. It's like the the final sermon he gives them. He's preparing his disciples for his death and his return to heaven. And in John 16, 7, he tells the disciples, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, who's the counsellor? Well, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit. Now, why would it be better for Jesus to go? Well, because the Holy Spirit is God himself living with every Christian everywhere across all time. Jesus, the man, can only be in one place at one time, but the Holy Spirit is God's real presence with every believer. A couple of chapters earlier in John 14, 23, Jesus describes uh, describes this, this coming to dwell with people as God the Father and God the Son making their home in believers. Uh, look at this wonderful verse, uh, John 14, 23. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He's not just watching from a distance. He's not sitting up there on a cloud. He's moving in. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are moving in to you. Matthew 28, 20. Uh, many of you know this verse well, but do you notice what it says at the end after Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If you are in Christ... Whatever happens, he will never leave you. Jesus wants to be your saviour. He wants to be your Lord and your King. But he also wants to be your friend. A steadfast, loyal, strong and faithful friend. The best way we can help lonely people is to introduce them to Jesus. But that doesn't mean human friendships are irrelevant. 
the reality is God made us for connection with people. This, it would be cruel for me on a talk about loneliness to suggest that human friendship doesn't matter as long as you have Jesus as a friend. That would be cruel. We actually want to do both. We, we want to tell people about Jesus who is the very best friend, but we actually have the opportunity as a church to help people who are missing human connection. God has brought us together as the church. Uh, Ephesians 2 describes how God uh, has made Christians into one new humanity and he destroys the things that separate people. Specifically, it's thinking about the Jewish law and Jews and Gentiles, but more broadly we can say God is destroying the things that separate people. Verse 19, he says, Consequently, you, you Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. God is taking you from being disconnected and lonely, making you friends. In fact, more than friends, God is making us into family. That is a wonderful goal for us as God brings new people into church. Uh, that we will move beyond being friendly with people to being friends with people. And then we will move beyond being friends to being family. It's pretty easy to be friendly, isn't it? You can be friendly with bus drivers, shop assistants, people sitting next to you. We can be friendly here at church without being friends. That's something deeper. Let's move from being friendly to friends to family. Family because we all belong to Jesus, the friend of sinners. Let me finish with a wonderful, another wonderful quote from Dane Ortland. Jesus will be our never-failing friend, no matter what friends we do or do not enjoy on earth. He offers us a friendship that gets underneath the pain of our loneliness. While that pain does not go away, its sting is made fully bearable by the far deeper friendship of Jesus. He walks with us through every moment. He knows the pain of being betrayed by a friend but he will never betray us. He will not even so much as coolly welcome us. That is not who he is. Amen. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us, uh, whatever our situation, as far as loneliness or being sufficient with friends, uh, help us to look to Jesus, to trust him and to recognise all that he uh, finds, uh, all that he offers us. Amen.